Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, Lord, that you are good, Lord. Your goodness, as, as our brother shared earlier today, Lord, your goodness endures forever, Lord. Your mercies endure forever. And we're thankful for that, Lord. We thank you that you would just give us this opportunity to jump into your word. I thank you for these wonderful people that are here ready to just dig in. And uh, Lord, just dig into a great book. Lord, and great insight into a world that I think uh, it just really creates a lot of confusion in people's hearts. And we pray, God, that you would remove that confusion, Lord, that, um, Lord, you would just uh, look at this as a, uh, that you would cause us to look at this for what it's meant to be, and that, Lord, we would just be blown away by what you would have to say. So, Lord, I pray that the words that I share would be your words, Lord, and not mine, and that, Father, you'd just be glorified in this time. So, Lord, we love you, God. We thank you, and we ask these things now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, the book of Revelation. Now, I think that there are a few things that we need to do, uh, critical things I think we have to establish here. Um, in order for you to sort of grasp what it is that we're going through and what we're talking about. Now, um, as we talk about this book, and I do think that it is um, interesting. Look, I'm excited to see so many of you coming out on Sunday night. I think that um, there are some very unique promises made to people who read this book. And one of the promises is that you're going to be blessed for those of you that actually study this book. It's, it's actually written in this book. You will be blessed for reading it. You'll be blessed for studying it. And so all of you guys, I think, are looking for a great blessing. And uh, that's why you're here, and I think you're going to receive it. And it's, I think it's just going to minister to you. It's going to be great. It's, it's just going to blow your mind, and you're, you're just going to be impacted in some pretty big ways. So um, I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to this. I think that uh, you guys are just, uh, you're going to walk away uh, really enriched. So let's talk a little bit about the history behind the book of Revelation. First of all, a few things you should know about the book. Number one, kind of interesting, right? In the New Testament, the book of Revelation is the only book that almost exclusively deals with future events. You don't deal a whole lot. And when I talk about future events, it would be classified as a prophetic book that deals with the end of the age and the particular end of the age that Jesus talks about near the end of some of the Gospels. Revelation is an expounding upon many of the things that Jesus warned his disciples would take place in the last days. And so um, it is a, a book that is predominantly designed for that. It's broken up into three parts. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, if you ever get confused about the book, um, you just need to look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Verse 19 of chapter 1 is the key to the book of Revelation. If you don't know that verse, you will not understand the rest of the book. Think of verse 19 as the encryption key for those of you computer nerds, right? Or for some of you that are just simply looking for something practical, it's the key that gets you in the door. If you don't have this key, you don't understand it. It's lost. And so verse 19, of course, this is Jesus talking. He's telling John, he's saying, write the things which thou hast seen, right? And the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, what are the things that he has seen? The things that he has seen is literally chapter one of Revelation, right? The things which are is literally chapter two and chapter three of Revelation, right? 
And then the things which are to come is chapter 4 all the way to the very last, all the way to the very end, okay? And so um, this is a, a critical way of looking at this. You cannot understand. Let me, let me just say this. You will never understand the book of Revelation unless you look at verse 19 and see it this way. Now, there's a lot of ways of looking at this book, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, but one of the things I think we need to talk about first and foremost is the history of the book of Revelation. There is a lot of history that drives this, okay? First of all, we know that at the point of the writing of the book of Revelation, the church is 60 or so years old. It's actually a little more older than 60 years. We're thinking it might be as old as 66 years old at this point, 66 or 67. And interestingly enough, um, there are different points in time where the church was radically persecuted and John seemed to survive all of them, okay? So let's talk about the history leading up to the book of Revelation. Obviously, the most significant time of persecution or one of the more significant times of persecution that we know about is the persecution under Caesar Nero, okay? And if you remember from 64 to right around 67 AD, Caesar Nero lights all of Rome on fire with Christians, Literally uses Christians as candles, wraps them up in flammable clothing, lights them on fire. uh, We know through history that Caesar Nero actually lit his garden up, literally lit his garden up with burning Christians and rejoiced and mocked at the sound of Christian suffering as they were being burned. And of course, under Caesar Nero, we know that certain people were uh, martyred during that. We know that Paul was very likely directly martyred by Caesar Nero. We also know that Peter uh, was possibly martyred by Caesar Nero. Some people say even James. Um, But it was a very difficult time for the church. It was a very hard time. And it was in the infancy stages of the church. A church at this point had probably been maybe 30 years old at at the oldest. And then there's a period of time that went by where, of course, Rome was still continuing to persecute Christians, but the persecution had diminished or attenuated somewhat, right? And then we find ourselves at 95 AD. So we hit the fast forward button. We go way forward. We take in another 30 years. We get ourselves to 95 AD, and there was a guy named Dominin, which, um, who, of course, was a ruler. And the names of these rulers don't really even matter. But under him, there was significant persecution that took place. And this is in 95 AD. Now, of course, 95 AD, we know that John the Apostle was in his 90s at this point, and this is the point where he was then uh, exiled. It was during this time period, 95 AD, when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Now, why was he exiled to the island of Patmos? Well, because they tried to kill him many times, multiple times. As a matter of fact, the last attempt on his life, which was made by this particular uh, Nero, or by, 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 by this particular Caesar, he was actually believed, church uh, tradition tells us, that it was believed that he was put put into a boiling pot of oil and it did nothing to him. And so, of course, in frustration, recognizing that he was invincible or unkillable, basically uh, they uh, take him and put him out on the island of Patmos to basically die. And um, Caesar Nero did some... uh, Let me back up. Caesar Nero did some crazy things that set precedent for all of these guys doing even crazier things, right? Like I told you, he burned Christians. He was the one that really made it famous or made it popular to take Christians and put them in the center of these Colosseums. You know, um, when we went to Rome, I remember going to Rome with the group and 
people in Rome would just be, you know, our group would just be blown away. They'd come and they'd see the beauty of the Colosseum. But there were lots of people that were on that trip that were very spiritually in tune. And they were like, James, I don't know what it is. I'm blown away at the beauty of this Colosseum. It looks amazing and it's gorgeous. And I like, I've never seen anything like it. And it's just so intense. But there's something that when I walk in this Colosseum, it feels demonic. There's just something that feels satanic. And I'd say, I would always tell them, I'd say, well, that is probably a little bit of discernment because what took place on the very grounds in which you're standing is they took hundreds and thousands of Christians and they put them in this Colosseum on the floor level with a bunch of animals, you know, vicious animals to kill Christians. And Christians would fend for themselves. They'd fight against these hungry lions and tigers and so on and so forth. And they were left to basically fend for their lives. And the Romans would cheer and eat their snacks and and, and watch these Christians die and loved every minute of it. It was a form of uh, entertainment and it was sort of the way it worked. And so many of these habits were caught on to by other rulers and um, some rulers lightened up a little bit more. Other rulers did not. Of course, as I told you with Dominant, there was a... Um, Dominion, there was a, a just, it was brutal. It was another time of persecution. And then there was a, there was in 98 AD, as you push fat, you, you push forward a little bit longer, there was even greater persecution that took place. And although lots of time had gone by from these persecutions, back from the original persecution, at this point in 98 AD, they say over 40,000, literally over 40,000 Christians in less than a year were actually killed in this very concentrated area near where John was. And so it's interesting to see uh, what's going on. And I think it's unique because at the same time, even though all these persecutions were going on, there was something even more dangerous to the church. By the way, uh, let me just say this. Any time I've ever seen it in church history where the church has been persecuted, the church always grows as a result of the persecution. You know what I'm talking about? People get persecuted, they bind together, amazing things begin to happen, people's walks grow stronger. Persecution oftentimes brings strength to the body of Christ. It causes the church to grow. This is not a, um, a surprise, it shouldn't be a surprise to any of you that we know that, right? But what causes the church to die is in essence complacency and carnality. And, and we saw some of that going on around the time of Caesar Nero. We saw the church begin to get complacent and carnal. And of course, Paul addressed that to the church in Corinth, right? We know that that kind of thing was going on. But it seemed as though much of that got under control and things got bad again, significantly bad again uh, around the time where John was exiled to Patmos and even a little bit before then and then at this particular time where John is putting this he's penning this stuff down on paper you have to understand that this is a man who is beginning to be discouraged in watching the significant compromise that was going on in the church people in the church were not really thinking about the things of God they were focused and concentrated on the world they were thinking about the world they were not they were thinking about their own material goods and they were thinking about you know blending in and being friends with everybody and they were thinking about all kinds of things none of which had anything to do with the church none of which had anything to do with the things of God and so carnality was beginning to settle in within the church and it was creating a dynamic where there were lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people that were focused on other things and so they were not being strong and so when the times of persecution came it obviously it 
strengthened the church. It sort of separated those that were carnal from those that really were making a commitment to the Lord. It separated the men from the boys, so to speak, the girls from the women, and, and really changed the hearts and the attitudes of people. So John pins this on paper, and it is interesting. Everybody asks who the author of Revelation is, and of course, everybody's first reaction is, well, it would have been John the Apostle, right? We know that. Well, of course, John the Apostle was the man who took his pen and put his pen to paper, but the author of the book of Revelation really is Jesus Christ. He's the one that authored it. He literally speaks very clearly through and through all the way from the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2 and chapter 3. He addresses the concern and the issues going on with the church, the concerns that he had with the, with the, with the body of Christ at that time. And then he jumps into this area where he talks about the things that are to come. And so uh, it is interesting in the beginning of chapter 4 of Revelation, you'll see this phrase, after these things. In the Greek, we oftentimes we say metatauta, which basically, again, same thing. It's like this is literally after this time period, after what we see in the future, this is a, a, what is going to happen. Now, there's a lot of mistakes people make with the book of Revelation, and we'll talk about those mistakes. First of all, the greatest mistake that people make with the book of Revelation is they spiritualize it, right? And there are people that interpret this by spiritualizing it. It's the greatest, most detrimental mistake you can make in looking at this book. People who tend to spiritualize this book also spiritualize Israel. They actually call Israel sort of a fake for lack of a better term, kind of a, a picture. There is no real nation of Israel. Israel is oftentimes classified as the church. Sometimes people have classified Israel as the, the compromised church, the church that isn't really walking with God, that's lukewarm. That just simply isn't true. And there's too many problems with people who spiritualize uh, the book of Revelation. Then there's a, pe a, group, a people group that call themselves preterist. And by the way, there are some wonderful people who love the Lord that take on the preterist view. And I have a very very difficult time with many of the things within that view and one of the most difficult times that I have with this view is they actually believe that all of these things happened already and I'm, I'm summarizing it I'm sort of over uh, oversimplifying it um, and I think I, there's a lot of problems with people who take on this view uh, not not the uh, not people but the view itself matter of fact some of the godliest people that I know really wonderful godly people have the preterist view concerning these things I just simply disagree with them and I think that they'll they'll agree with me when we're all taken up and I believe that they'll be taken up as well so because uh, they love the Lord and they're part of the body of Christ but we do have people that believe that and there's also people that spiritualize it and and you know I love them but I don't agree with them I think that it's a it's a it's a fallacy it's a difficult way of looking at it and then there's a there's a way that people look at this where they say well this deals with more issues that relate to the things sort of going on at that time um, and and of the day and it's a, it's also a different view they look at it where they basically say well we're just going to look at this with sort of a, a whole metaphorical emphasis and 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 in many ways it's just a book of practicality which revelation is a very practical book but it, they sort of look at it as well there's lessons to be learned here and everything is kind of metaphorical and symbolic and we've got to pull the symbolism out of this i don't believe that i actually look at this view from what you would call that perspective of the future like these things are going to be happening many much of which we read in the book of Revelation is going to happen and hasn't actually happened yet. And it is interesting. We know that there's a bunch of things you should know about the book of Revelation. One of the things you should know is with all of the prophecy that we see discussed in the book of Revelation, there are some significant parallels to the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, there are things in Revelation that would align with the book of Daniel. There's things in Revelation that would align with the book of Ezekiel. There's references from Jeremiah that would align with the book of Revelation, even in Isaiah. 
You'll actually see some things being referred to as it relates to the book of Revelation. And so you can see very clearly that there is an expounding that's going on by Christ. Basically, I believe this is Christ appearing to the church, in essence, through John. He's going to John, and he's giving John this whole vision of what's going to happen in the future so that the church would take heart and have hope in the soon return of Jesus Christ. By the way, it's so critical as the church today that we hold fast to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back for us soon. I've never seen us closer to that time than I see it now and if you hold to that view it will radically change the way you live it won't be I know a lot of people that say well Jesus Christ is coming soon so I can get into debt and not pay anything back praise the Lord I'm gonna go buy whatever I want there's some people say well Jesus Christ is coming soon so I might as well go do whatever I can because it ain't gonna matter anyway no baloney it's Jesus Christ is coming back soon, so I better make sure that when I leave, people will go, oh my gosh, something serious must be going on because these people were amazing. They were the best tenants. They paid off their... De- they, they were good managers with their money. They lived their life well. They were great employees at their jobs. They literally occupied on this earth. They did so well. Why? Because we know Jesus Christ is coming back, and if Jesus Christ is coming back, we don't want to get caught riding dirty. You know what I mean? We want to get caught going for it, serving the Lord, seeking the Lord, making the best of everything that we have, not wasting our time, really going for it. And this is the beautiful part of prophecy. Prophecy motivates us to do this. Prophecy is the very thing that that literally brings us to that place of just saying, oh Lord, you're coming back soon, so motivate me, fire me up, get me excited about what you have for us. By the way, I have to say that I believe the most exciting time we are going through as a church right now is this period. Just as Calvary Chapel Signal Hill. Why? Because on Thursday nights, we're going to the book of Acts, right? Sunday nights, we are going through the book of Revelation. Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Isaiah. Holy smokes, what a program, right? I mean, you think about it. We are, this is going to be such an intense time. And for all of us that are taking all of this in, jumping in, receiving it, your life is never going to be the same because you're going to be trained to understand what the Bible already tells us. And that is Jesus Christ is coming back soon. So watch out and live like he's coming back soon, right? understand that we don't have much time left on this earth so we need to be fruitful with the time that we have we need to occupy till christ comes and whatever it is that we do in life we need to do it with our whole hearts we need to enjoy ourselves serving the lord and enjoying his creation and doing all the things that he wants us to do and doing it with faithful whole hearts and so I think that's critical. It's important that we look at Revelation that way. Now, let's talk about Revelation itself. Revelation is a very practical book, okay? It is. Whether or not anybody wants to admit it, Revelation is a very practical book. It brings us very practical insights. It talks to us about ways we should be living our lives, the things that we should be looking to, particularly as you look at chapter 2 through 4, it is so significantly practical because of many of the applications that we can draw from the concerns that Christ had with the churches, the seven churches here, which are symbolic of some other things. But no, you got to know that these were real churches during, during that period in time going through some extraordinary things. And the parallels that we see between these churches and the things that we see today and the things that are coming are pretty amazing. The other thing that you need to realize about the book of Revelation is the book of Revelation is not some mystical sort Sort of a, you know, this is what it says, and I think you ought to look at it this way because the blue represents, uh, you know, and people people come up with craziness when they read through this book, you know. Well, the way that the word seal is pronounced here, the way it's spelled here, it actually means that there are four people. It was the last four popes from the Catholic Church, and we we know that it's no baloney, right? A lot of people, it's just the weirdness of things. Look, you've got to take things quite literally. Now, 
Now you might say, well, what do you mean quite literally? He talks about weird dragons that he doesn't understand and all kinds of other things. What does he mean when he says that? Well, first of all, in the geographical locations in which he talks about, you've got to know he's probably talking about the actual locations. If he's talking about Babylon, right? No doubt he's probably talking about the Iraq-Iran portion of our world today, okay? So there are very literal things that are being said here and the things that you might look at and go, well, he can't be physically actually talking about this like as it is. He's talking about all these different, look like uh, like you're in the middle of some wizard movie or something like that. I mean, just some crazy, like mystical characters you read. Well, here's the deal. You got to keep in mind, John has never been pushed in the future, right? Write this down in your notes. He was never pushed in the future. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine living in a world where you've never seen an airplane, where you've never seen a car, where you've never seen a missile, where you've never seen a rocket, you've never seen any of the modern amenities that we experience today on a regular basis. Imagine what it must look like the first time you saw an F-18 go through the air and you've never seen an airplane before in your life. And the only vocabulary that you have are things that are relevant to that day. So he gets pushed into the future. He's not going to be able to say, and lo, I, and behold, I saw an F-18A Hornet, you know, flying across the street that had a certain amount of, you know, smart bombs that we saw, the new ones that, you know, Israel just developed for their, you know, that's not going to be the case. They're going to be looking at things like this and they're going to say, and I saw what appeared to be a large bird that da 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 you know what I mean he's going to use terminology that was familiar to him back then and so you have to understand John is doing his very best to describe future concepts that he'd never seen before using old terms and so when we go through the book of Revelation I guarantee you if you take the time to think about it you'll be able to identify those places where that happens so the point is John is not like on some bad acid trip right where he's like he just dropped a LSD dropped a few tabs and like oh trip out dude I'm looking at like the blue sky and like, oh wow, trip out, there's blood, and then the this is there's none of that going on. He's doing his very best to interpret. He's doing his very best to appropriate a particular set of passages where he's uh, uh, writing things down, trying to draw out, literally, in, as he's writing these passages, he's trying to draw out for us in terms that only he under, like terms, that, things that he doesn't understand, and he's trying to do it in practical everyday terms. So you've got to remember to look at Revelation that way. You cannot look at Revelation as this is some big, huge, symbolic you know, picture. You do that, you're going to end up making some significant mistakes because then if, that, if you do that, then at what point do you end up saying, well, this applies here and that applies there? So much becomes subjective as opposed to objective, right? Here's the other danger. And Christ even warned us of this. Remember when Christ told the par- parables to us? Lots of parables that he told us. And, and one of the mistakes that people make when they try to study the word or when they try to teach through a passage or look at it, they'll take a parable of Jesus and they'll try to interpret every little detail that Jesus brings up. When in reality, sometimes that just wasn't... There was no... Dis- it, the original intent wasn't for that to take place, right? So there are times in Revelation where you'll hear John use general terminology where he's trying to describe something specific and we take general terminology and we we literally zoom in and we make specifics out of it right we attach numbers to it and we do this and we do that and we end up coming to some very grave errors and that's the last thing that you want to do when you go through the book of revelation you don't want to take everything to its last detail by the way i hate to say this and so ladies please don't be um uh you know weirded out when i say this i will say this i, I make this comment many of the teachers that we've had especially recently uh, female teachers we've not seen do and my wife 
wife is, look, my wife's an amazing Bible teacher, uh, female Bible, well, of course she's a female, but she's a good Bible teacher, and I haven't ever seen her do this. But I do see some women do this. They'll get up there, um, and praise God, some of the teachers we've had recently don't know Gail and Cheryl, they're awesome. They teach better than a lot of pastors that I know. They might even teach better than me, I don't know. But anyway, um, you, but you do have some women in some of the, the, the you know, in bi- women's Bible studies, they'll go up there and they'll say, well, the flowers that Jesus mentions when he talks about, you know, Solomon in all his glory not being clothed, it is symbolic of the, of the, of the, of the, you know, the rainbows in the sky and the grass. Fl- I mean, they just, they get weird. You know what I'm talking about? Like I've heard many Bible studies like that and girls just come to some crazy, I see it more often in women. I do see it in men too, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. I actually heard a guy recently that I think was just, I don't know, he was losing his mind or something. I don't know what was, what was being said. But the bottom line is people come to these different conclusions and, and they do it based on over uh, exaggerating a particular point that maybe God never intended to be exaggerated or spoken about, right? Um, and this is a very, by the way, we do this all throughout the scripture. It happens a lot, right? Like for For example, Genesis chapter one, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That's verse one. Verse two, it says, and the earth was without form and void. So what does everybody do? They say, well, there must be a gap between verse one and verse two. It says that God created the heavens and the earth. And then here we read about this void that the earth was without form and void. So something bad must happen. Then people come up with this whole crazy doctrine, crazy doctrine that, well, this is the period of time, the, the period of time between verse one and verse two where satan rebelled you know with the demons and the earth was you know made to not again it was destroyed and it had to be rebuilt and so people come up with some crazy things actually let me tell you what it's basically saying the problem is people read too deep into it what it's saying is this the author in genesis is identifying god as the creator of the universe he says he's making one declaration in verse one he says in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth he's saying i'm identifying god as the creator of the heavens and the earth Then he says this. Then he says the earth was without form and void. In other words, what he's saying is this is how God created the earth. It started out as raw material. And he began to form and fashion it just like he did us, right? And and of course, we know that that's the intent because as we get into the the next uh, set of verses, he talks about what he did in day one, what he did in day two, what he did in day three, what he did in four, what he did in five, what he did in six, and what he did in seven as he rested, right? But the idea is God took raw material, right? By the way, God was the creator of the raw material, right? He says that. It makes that declaration in verse one. He took nothing and he made something. Then we get to verse two. We take the raw material. And of course, the raw material is what he took. He formed and he fashioned it, right? So think about it. The contractor comes with a bunch of wood. He created the wood for, you know, out of nothing. And then he goes and he takes that wood and he makes a beautiful house. Same kind of thing. That's exactly what God did, right? Now, contractors can't make something out of nothing. If they did, they'd be very rich people because there'd be no material costs, right? Um, and they might actually, I don't know, anyway, I'll just leave that be. But you, you get the idea here. This is what we're talking about. And so this is something that you need to understand. Very important. You don't want to overemphasize or, or focus so laser into something that you miss the whole picture. So these are some interesting things about the book of Revelation. Another thing that you need to know about the book of Revelation, and it is critical that you understand it, is it is very specific in nature. It is not the type of book that deals in generalizations with respect to what is going to happen in the future. It makes very specific claims about the things that we're going to see, and they are things that will take place at a certain point in time in the future. Do not confuse it for, well, this may or may not happen. And No, there's very specific things that it talks about that's going to happen. And this is Jesus, of course, expounding upon those things. Now, 
There are some phrases that we see in Revelation, a few that I'd like to focus on, and and we'll kind of close with this because I think it's kind of an encouraging thought process, but there's some phrases that you'll see in the book of Revelation, and they're phrases that I guess if you were to call them beatitudes, you could call them beatitudes, right? We talk about the blessings, right? What blessings are declared upon in the book of Revelation? There's seven areas in the book of Revelation that I see blessings um, uh, declared. It says in Revelation chapter 22, we'll start from the end and go to the beginning, right? Well, let's start from the beginning and go to the end because it's a little bit easier for me to kind of recall, right? So uh, the first one is in verse three, okay? Look at verse three, what it says. It says, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in. Therefore, the time is at, or sorry, for the time is at hand. In other words, if you read this book, if you study it, if you hold fast to it, if you believe it, by the way, the Bible says God will bless you. Now you might think, whoa, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. I know that you will see amazing things happen in your life and they will come out in different ways and in using different methodologies and and different thought processes. But the idea is God will bless you. If you invest yourself in this book, you absolutely beyond any shadow of a doubt will be blessed, right? By the way, this is interesting. Then we skip on all the way. The next blessing is way later in the book of Revelation. Let's go to actually Revelation chapter 14. And we can, we can see another blessing that's declared here. And some of these are very interesting blessings. The one that we see in 14, verse 13, it says this, in chapter 14, verse 13, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, in other words, write this, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, they that may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. So what do we talk about? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from it, from this point on. So there's an opportunity for people that are going through the tribulation to actually be blessed if they die uh, by rejecting the mark, right? And so there's some interesting things that go on there. So an interesting proclamation. We get into chapter 16. Let's go there. Chapter 16. And it is, ah, verse 15. I love this verse. Look at this. Behold, chapter 16, verse 15, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now, let me give you the picture of this. The picture of this is I'm going to come and you're not going to know when I come. So blessed are you when you are, when I come and you're ready for me. There was one summer that I can remember in particular as a police chaplain where it seemed as though every other night, if not every night, I would get called out to do a notification, a death notification, or there was a murder of some sort, or there was an officer-involved shooting, or some major crisis went down. And it got to the point where by the time I got to the second month in the summer, by the time I got to July, (coughs) I actually started going to bed with my shoes on and my clothes on because I knew that by the time it got to around 2 or 3 in the morning, I'd probably get called out, especially if it was a weekend, on a homicide (coughs) or some crazy situation. And it got to a point where 
when they initially would call me to go out because I'd, I'd take me forever to put on my clothes and all that kind of stuff. I would get out there in 30 minutes, 35 minutes, 40 minutes. It got to a point where they would call me out and I would be there in seven or eight minutes flat. Literally, I would get up, get in my car and take off and go over there and go deal with whatever needs to be. And it got to a point where people were saying, dang, man, you're here before some of the other officers are here. What's going on? You're here. You listening to the radio? You, you know, you play? no, I just, I'm ready. I knew that this was, I was sleeping in my, you're sleeping in your clothes. What? You know, and I remember having to put a towel where my feet were on the bed because my shoes were getting everything dirty and everything. But, but the idea is, is may it be that we're that way with our walks with God. That when the thief comes into the house, okay, that we not get caught naked. And some of you, I know some of you people don't sleep with a whole lot of clothes on. Matter of fact, some of you probably sleep naked. Hey, no big deal. That's your own business, right? The idea is you don't want to be the person that's caught naked in your own house, right? You want to be the guy, check this out. You want to be the guy that's in the house with all your tactical gear on. You got your bullet, not that I, I don't hope all of you don't have all this stuff, but you know, you got your bulletproof vest on and you've got your 45 in your hand and you're sitting there at the door waiting for the thief to come out. You're, you're just, the, you're, you're waiting. You see the shadow coming in, the door opens, the thief kind of breaks in and you're like, what's up, dude? Get your hands up, fool. You know, like that's, that's, that's who I want to, not that I'm calling God a thief and I'm going to stick a gun in God's face, but the idea is, is that God is going to come suddenly like that, right? And so blessed are, blessed are we when we're ready. Our clothes are on. We're not cut right and dirty. We're going for it. We're ready. We're serving the Lord. It's like, Lord, we expected this. And what took you so long? You know what I mean? That's the attitude that we want to have. I don't know about you, but I want to be the guy that's got his clothes on when the Lord comes, right? And so <laughs> look at this in verse or chapter 19. Here's another blessed. This would be our one, two, three. This would be the fourth one, right? Look at chapter 19. And look at verse 9, right? And it says, and he saith unto me, write, so write this down, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Blessed are they who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a beautiful picture of our relationship with Christ. And, you know, I, I think about this. I, when I was thinking about the marriage supper of the Lamb and, and thinking about this verse, I was thinking about the day that I married my wife. And um, it's kind of hard to not get emotional when I think about this, but... I still remember, and I find myself oftentimes going back over some of the emotions that I felt on the day that I married my bride, but I remembered, you know, I spent a lot of years in the fellowship hall at Calvary Chapel Downey, a lot of years, or in the South Sanctuary of Calvary Chapel Downey. I taught from that place. I spent, you know, a good part of my life there. I lived there for a year right? Because I, I was the watchman at that point. I've done everything you could think of that, you know, could be done in the church setting over there at Calvary Chapel Downey. And I have never, ever looked at that room the same way since I sat in that room with my bride eating dinner, watching all of our guests that were there. You know, first of all, it was pretty ominous. You know, there's 600 people in the room, you know, uh, eating dinner, maybe just a little bit north of 600. We had almost 2,000 people show up to the wedding. I mean, it was, it was big, right? And so um, I was, that was, uh, you know, that could be a bit overwhelming, but I just remember sitting by my bride and just thinking, man, this is the life. Like, this is cool. I'm married. Matter of fact, this is interesting. I don't know if my wife remembers this. There was a point in time where they had to take our rings so that they could take some pictures. And I was getting antsy. I'm like, give me my ring back, dang it. I want my ring back, you know? Um, but I just remember the emotion that I felt as I was sitting there at the marriage supper. Like, man, this is great. 
I'm eating great food and I didn't get to eat much, you know, because I really wasn't thinking much about that. I was just overwhelmed by the, by, the, by the process of the whole day and all of our guests and it was just a wonderful day. And I just remember being so overwhelmed at that point thinking this is an incredible, incredible moment. Isn't it wonderful to do that? And I think about this. There was a person that went to our wedding. Matter of fact, a few people that went to our wedding, they, they got invited, non-believers, right? We invited a lot of non-believers um, to the reception and um, one of the folks that we invited uh, called me up and said, dude, I have never in my life, I've, I'm, I'm almost 50 years old. No, I'm over 50. I've never in my life been to a wedding where I did not get drunk or I did not have alcohol. So I'm still tripping out on the fact that you're not serving alcohol. Will you just let me bring a little bit for myself? Nope, you'll get kicked out. You can't do it. And we actually turned people away. We said, hey, put, put your bottles of wine back in the car. There was a, we had a few guys, a few of our security guys that had to do that, you know? And, and here's the thing that I thought was really cool about that. He calls me up. I think while we're on our honeymoon, I think our second day or third day on the honeymoon, he calls me on my phone and he wanted to leave a message and I picked up the phone. He's like, what the heck are you doing picking up the phone on your honeymoon, bro? I'm like, well, I'm not going to like completely tune out, you know? He goes, bro, I just have to tell you, man, I've never been to a wedding where I didn't drink alcohol and this was the most enjoyable wedding I've ever been to. I said, yeah, you weren't plastered. So, you know, you can actually experience the joy of the surroundings that you're in. You know what I mean? But, but the point is, what he was saying, and I think he was right, he's saying, I've never been to a, to a, 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 like a, a, a place where it was so festive and I was loving it and enjoying it. And me and my wife were just, we just so, it was so joyful and happy. And it was just, man, there was so much. It was just amazing, amazing. And I think about it, I, I remember one of the other emotions that I was thinking of, and this is the one I was going to share with you the most is, and I never even told my wife this, but I'm sitting by her and I'm looking, at the, the tables are um, literally going down the long way towards us. So we can see people, the sides of people, you know, down the tables. And as I'm looking at the tables, I'm blown away because the one thing that I, that I noticed is that every plate Every mat, every uh, fork and knife, every napkin, every, uh, uh, I mean, just beautiful decoration, my wife designed it from the scratch, from, just from the, from the ground up. And her and a few, even literally the night before our wedding, I mean, up until, I don't know, midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning, putting everything in place, walking through, making sure, doing everything herself. And I was thinking, my bride. She prepared all of this. She went out of her way to make sure that the marriage supper would be a wonderful supper for everybody. And I did some things too. You know, I, we went to the place where they were selling the Middle Eastern food and I haggled and, and yelled in Arabic with my dad and we fought back and forth and wonderful Palestinian family, you know, we got a good deal on all the food and, you know, and then even once we closed the deal, I said, no, that's too much. You know, I'm changing my mind. And then we got again, got in it again for another 20 minutes and give me tea and let's sit down and have some coffee. And, you know, and then, you know, and then, and then we agree on the price and I pull out the cash and I go, oh, I'm kind of short, you know, can you do me this? And, and it's in the Middle East, that's what we do. It's that's, that's Respected, right? And you know, so but in the, in my mind, I'm thinking, man, I just dumped a lot of dough into this, but it's going to be so worth it. It's going to be so wonderful, so so beautiful. And and of course, it was interesting. It's a Palestinian family that, that cooked all this. I remember the guy who did all the cooking. He came to me. He walked right up to the table and did what they do traditionally. You know, they just greeted me the traditional way and told me some things in Arabic. It's very beautiful. But the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are we that all you got to do is show up. We're going to talk about that. How exciting is it going to be to be reunited or to be united with our groom? 
Can you, I, I don't know about you, but I'm so blessed. You know, I think one of the reasons why I enjoyed that time with my wife so much, that beautiful day, is because I think that it really is a glimpse as into what we're going to experience one day with the Lord, right? It's beautiful. You, you, it's, it's, it's something special and something that I certainly uh, enjoyed and, and just a wonderful thing. Look at this. This is awesome. Look at verse 6 of chapter 20. And it said this, Blessed... Notice this, and holy. Okay, so not only blessed, but this time now we're talking about holy, meaning set apart, right? Is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's talking about my mom. who's with the Lord right now. You know, I mean, you, you think about the promises that we have for those that die in Christ, Right? Can, can you think about that? That there is going to be a resurrection of the believer's body and that glory in that. And think about this. We're going to, Christ is going to rule with an iron fist on this earth for a thousand years before he blows it up and we get to be rulers with him. We get to run around and, and handle the affairs of the, of, of, of the whole world. I like that. And I don't have to be a politician to do that. All I have to do is love God, right? I don't have to ask for votes. I don't have to, you know, play the games and do all the crazy things that people are doing. All I have to do is love God. That's really cool. Look, look at the other one. This one is also a good one. And um, this one is, I want to say it's in, uh, let me see. I believe it's in 21.7, I believe. Let me see. I lost my place here. Oh gosh. What did I write here? You know what? Maybe it is in. Let me see here. Ah! My brain is not working right. There's two of them in chapter 22. I was thinking there was one in chapter 21. Verse 7 of chapter 22. Let's look at this one. This one is really good. Look at this in in verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. He says, behold, I come quickly. Watch out, John. This is what he's telling John. John, watch out. I'm coming back fast. Right? I'm come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. In other words, if you believe the words of this book and you live according to them, you will be blessed by God. By the way, there's a lot of people that say they believe things, but we know that they don't because they don't act as though they believe it, right? If, 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 if we were all sitting together in this room and I told you that the Lord told me, and I, forgive me for the, for the, um, I think for the difficult picture that I'm about to draw. But if I sat in this room and I told you that the Lord told me that somebody was going to come in here in five minutes and shoot everybody in the room, those of you that believed me would get out of here, wouldn't you? You would. If you didn't believe me, you'd stay right here. Right? Now, there might be a few people that believe me and stay right here, but that's because they're armed and they're ready to shoot the guy back, right? And there's a few people I know that would do that. But the point is, if you actually believe me, you would act on it. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those that keepeth the sayings of this prophecy, right? In other words, you're going to be blessed if you study this. We know that. Blessed are those of you who study it, who dedicate yourself to it. But blessed are you who live according to what it says, right? 
And I love, I love this. I love going to the book of Revelation when I'm in Israel and talking to some Jews and saying, you will never, you will never, you will never, ever, ever be removed from your land again. And I'll go, I'll take them through Amos and show them what Amos says and then get into Revelation and go, look, you're going to, you're going to go through a rocky time. You're going to go through a rough time. You might have to take off, go into Petra, you know, some things. But if you, if you endure, right, you're going to be, you're going to overcome. But why go through that? Why don't you accept Jesus right now into your heart? Be complete. There's a blessing in living that way, in thinking that way, in understanding that. So critical, so important. Look at the last one. And this one is also a favorite, right? Look at verse 14. It says, blessed are they that do his commandments. This is the same chapter, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, they that may have uh, right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. So notice this. We are to hold fast to the word of God. Blessed are those who obey God's commands. Blessed are, are, are we when we look at the word of God. And I believe that this is referring locally to the book of Revelation, but I think there's a principle here that would certainly apply, you know, to the rest of the Bible. But in this context, it's talking about Revelation. We're blessed by listening to the things that are told to us. And there's a lot of commands in the book of Revelation. You know, I never went and counted the commands. I can go back and do that as we get into chapter one next week. But let me tell you, there's a lot of them, a lot of commandments to keep. A lot of, lot of things that we can learn from the book. And so the summary of the matter, the summary of this introduction and the summary of the, of the thought process through the book of Revelation is this. We have exciting times ahead of us. It's not like we're reading some historical book that tells us something that happened and we learn from history and it's a great thing. Yes, we get a little bit of that in the book of Revelation, but you get to get a front seat to what's about to happen, what we're about to see in this world, and it is going to pop off and it's going to be amazing. So hold fast, hold on. The book of Revelation is going to blow your mind and it is going to be one of the most enjoyable books that you've gone through. You think it's going to be difficult? I promise you, we will meet it with some great ease and and, and a great book. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and we thank you for the things that you've taught us, Lord, in this great book, Lord, the insights and the depth that we've gotten, Lord, the wisdom of your word, Lord, and we thank you for it, Lord. So, Father, as we continue to dig in, Lord, we pray for that excitement. We pray, Lord, for that thrill that comes from walking with you and knowing you, Lord. May we hold fast to the book, uh, to the words of this book, Lord, that you would be glorified and that you would be lifted up. So, Lord, we love you, God. We thank you. Keep us looking to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.